Welcome to this episode of Books Sandwiched In. I'm Glenn Walter. I'm president of the Friends of the Knox County Public Library. That's okay. Now, today our speaker is former Knoxville Police Chief Sterling Owen, and he is going to talk about The Better Angels of Our Nature, Why Violence Has Declined by Stephen Pinkner. Mr. Owens. Good afternoon. I hope that you're not disappointed in that the book and the title, uh, although certainly a very worthy book, it's a little bit misleading to what I think most people are looking for or anticipate uh, the content to be. And so I'm going to go through that with you. I'm going to follow basically the outline of the book, uh, Stephen Picker and the Better Angels of Our Nature, which I might add, he points out, is attributed to... um, to Abraham Lincoln. First of all, if you haven't seen the book, and this is, of course, a smaller version, so it is 700 pages. That being said, though, it is chocked full of information. Now, that information includes a great deal of data from past world wars, uh, the 1500s, and so forth. So, Most of the time, if you were like me, when I first uh, heard the title and became intrigued about uh, this particular book, in my mind, I was thinking we're talking about comparing what's going on now in, in 2013 or perhaps 2012 with five years ago, 10 years ago, whatever the case may be. And if you choose to read the book... Uh, I will tell you that that the comparisons are quite different. We're talking about uh, at the time of Christ. We're talking about in the uh, 14, 15, 1600s. So we're talking about comparing violence today as to, let's say, 1500 and the different types of violence. So I'm going to, as I said to you, I'm going to follow the outline that the book put out. And, and it does jump back and forth a little bit, so I'm, I'm giving you that heads up. It's not that I'm old and forgot what I just said, but instead, uh, that's the way the author deals with it, and I feel important that it's important that we follow that same track. Now, number two, I'm going to jump back and forth from the book to what's going on here in the city of Knoxville. And, and using comparisons with perhaps a topic or, or an issue that comes up in the book, uh, pro or con. And I want to tell you how the city of Knoxville and Knox County and the Sheriff's Department, how we have recognized this as being uh, a concern as well. And because of that, what actions, uh, if any, have been undertaken And I hope that maybe when you leave here today, you're going to be a little bit better acquainted with some of the the opportunities that are available to you or someone that you might know to address a particular problem they may incur. The author, and and I I had to take some notes because I'm not the best in terms of, of a historian, so bear with me here for a second. But the author starts off with really the first period of time he's dealing with as as being 5,000 years ago. And then he goes into his what he calls his second period, which are the Middle Ages and the 20th century, the third period, the 17th and 18th centuries, fourth period, the end of World War II. These are what he is breaking out as significant 
periods of time with regard to what he is uh, he's trying to say to us. The fifth period, the end of the Cold War in 1989, and finally, from the late 1950s to the present. And so he breaks things out in that way, and and he he tries to uh, relate how like families, our neighborhoods, our areas that you might be involved in, and and those particular areas how they might have been in 1500 versus now. Uh, he also tries to insert humor, and I guess this is not really a topic that you would think would be humorous, but at the same time, he talks from time to time about little sayings and how the sayings might be, where they came from. And I'll throw one out that comes to mind at the moment, and that is there was a period of time when if someone uh, did not show respect to another party, we're talking about, again, back in the mid-1500s or so, that it was acceptable to cut off their nose. That was something that you did. You would cut their nose off. Now, obviously, they may not like that, and it was because it was out of spite. Thus the saying, cutting off one's nose to spite their face. This author, Stephen Pinker, he has come up to say that, that these are, are, that, are that anyway, among other things, are the sources for some of these sayings that we've all heard over the years, and we may or may not have actually known where it came from. And also, he, he comes up with his thoughts on, on why not only the fact that, that it is less violent today than it was uh, in many, many years ago, but also why it is less violent. Um, if you're a historian, and if you've read a lot of the books from many, many, uh, referring to uh, activities many years ago, you will know that uh, in Europe, uh, obviously, there was a lot of feuding, and there were different factions of groups, and there were people who, who were fighting with others over territories and so forth. And because of that, uh, it's the author's opinion that, that uh, obviously they were killing each other to try to capture their lands or to try to capture the people that, that uh, lived there so that they could become their slaves and, and to deal with uh, things in terms of whoever uh, has uh, the most success in killing others is the one who becomes what turns out to be a, a, a king of their fiefdom. And, and he talks about uh, between the late Middle Ages and the 20th century, in Europe in particular, there was from a tenfold to a fiftyfold decline in uh, violence. Now, where does that come from? Well, first of all, if you think about it, and, and I hadn't really put it in this perspective until I read the book, but if you think about it, um, we've all heard stories over the years uh, or have read and studied and, and uh, or worshipped about, even back in, in Christ's time, the crucifixions. Now, if you think about that, uh, that is a, that's a pretty horrendous way to die. All the tortures that were going on in the old days, because they actually believed that that was a part of, uh, if you were not part of the in crowd, so to speak, that was a part of what could happen to you if you didn't play along with what whoever the leaders were 
that they would torture you. We think about even when the witches, remember the stories we heard about the witches up in, uh, in most of the time up in our northeastern part of the U.S., as well as overseas, and how they were treated, people who thought that they were witches. But according to the author, he feels like a lot of the, the decline in violence over those years was due to what his, his phrase, but it's a good one, the civilizing process, everybody becoming a little more civil. And uh, he talks about the 17th and 18th century. That's when you started seeing organized movements to try to eliminate slavery. Dueling, as a matter of fact, something about Aaron Burr on TV today. But the dueling was a very popular way. And, of course, thank goodness, we don't, in, in the truest of senses, we don't still have dueling. Uh, we certainly have shootouts from time to time. Judicial torture. If you were found guilty of something, there was actual torture that was attached as a part of your punishment. Superstitious killing, back to the witches. If you felt someone was doing something that uh, should uh, be banned, you may classify them as, as a criminal and punish them, and uh, in some cases to kill them. A sadistic punishment, cruelty to animals was, was very popular. And if you think about it, back in the Roman day, and, and again, I, I knew this, but I just didn't put it together with what the author was trying to say, where they would have in the Colosseum, they would have the animals come out in the Colosseum, and, and the, the knights, the gladiators, would, would end up in some cases killing the animals and so forth. As a matter of fact, uh, it's my recollection that, that it was also not uncommon for the gladiator, if he was fighting somebody else, with their big swords and whatnot, that whoever ended up being sort of the person who was successful in the, in the initial part of the fight, uh, the gladiator would ask for thumbs up to let them live or thumbs down to kill them. And the crowds would roar and do whichever one they wanted. And, of course, we don't think about that in today's age. It's uh, hopefully something that's not, you're not going to see at Neyland Stadium where you go out and bring in a crowd of 100,000 people and have them out there with swords fighting with each other. So was it more violent back in those days than it is now? Probably, but times have changed over the years, and we're looking at different problems and different things we need to be concerned about. Some of the things that, uh, the other things that we've heard, into World War II, we started seeing and they call them states, but it could be countries, it could be entities, it could be anything, that were becoming a little bit more organized. And, and you were seeing a little bit stronger evidence of governance where people could form uh, some sort of an organization, be it, I'm jumping way ahead, the United States versus some of the countries in, in England and so forth, who were fighting all the time. And... Um, they started, stopped waging war on each other and started joining forces to, for a common good. And I'll come back to that in a minute on why, probably. Since the Cold War in 1989, we've seen uh, civil wars, genocides, uh, repression uh, by autocrat, uh, autocratic governments, and we've certainly seen terrorist activities. Now, we talk about uh, terrorist activities, and... Um, we didn't really think of some of the things such as the Murrah 
federal building out in uh, Oklahoma. At the time that happened, we didn't think of that in terms of terrorism. We certainly had a criminal. We had someone who killed a lot of innocent people. But over a period of time, pretty much post uh, 9-11, we started realizing that, that uh, and, and defining some of the types of behavior. And all of a sudden, that type of behavior we would now know as domestic terrorism rather than international terrorism. So that type of behavior from way back when, though, they treated it as, as everyday business to, to kill someone, to torture someone, and so forth. And I'm going to read some things out of the book to you because I can't do it justice <laughs> uh, with some of the ways that they treated some of this behavior. Some of the things we believe have caused a reduction in some of the violence. Uh, and there's a, a lot of ladies in here, so you should feel proud. <laughs> Women's rights. And actually, there's a lot of discussion about um, in the 50s of, of when really marriage uh, was treated far more reverently than perhaps it is now. But you had a lot of uh, marriages. Uh, the husbands were coming back, or men were coming back from the war and so forth. People were getting married. Attention turned to raising children, to doing the right thing. And, and from that, the author says he believes that is part of what influenced violence being reduced uh, over that, peri that period of time. Because men, instead of hanging out on corners and doing these things, they were getting married and raising a family and going to work every day. And, and so, uh, and I concur with that. I believe that that certainly is a positive thing by way of trying to reduce violence. And men became, uh, they became more involved in trying to deal with uh, a purpose in life rather than just hanging out and trying to have fun. The author points out that, that most violence, and, and I'm actually going to come back to this in a, in a little bit later, but most violence is male-driven, male-driven. And, and it comes from the fact that our, in our makeup, men's makeup, there seems to be this desire to dominate no matter what the topic might be, whether it's in business, whether it's in sports, that's why we, we pay these guys these tremendous salaries to go out and play football, baseball, basketball, whatever the case may be. But in doing that, what, what uh, the author says is we're actually promoting um, uh, this male-driven sense to win at all costs. And, uh, and he certainly uh, discusses a number of those things. Um, he, he, talks about, he talked about things like... Uh, having found people, uh, bodies, in the, from the Ice Age. When people went up to Antarctica and different places and, and finding bodies, and, and those bodies actually, while people thought they just died and, and were frozen, when they, they did examinations of them, they actually found uh, the equivalent of arrowheads in them and different things, which the author says, tells him, that they were fighting and there was violence even back in those days. And if you try to, if you think about the, the population of the world back then, we were talking about this earlier, the, the size of the, of the population of the world back then compared to what it is now, if, if these folks were getting killed, there, it must have been more violent, the author's words, it must have been more violent back then than it is now. Um, 
He talked about David and Goliath, uh, how violent the Bible is. Uh, there's a great deal of, of violence contained in that. Um, Jesus being crucified. We talked about the, the Roman Empire and the Colosseum and the audiences for men and women to be killed or torn apart by animals. How violent is that? I mean, you know, that, that, that's pretty daggone violent. We don't see that today. And the author points that out uh, over and over again. And he, he does his own estimates. And he's, he's got his charts in here. Uh, he's, he is complimented in some of uh, the uh, comments about the book, people who, who read it and, and gave comments. He's complimented about the depth of his research. And I have to admit, he's got a lot of research. Now, uh, I, I don't know what the basis, the foundation of the research is, but uh, other than a lot of estimates. But I will tell you that, that he has done a great deal of it. Um, and he estimated just in the, in the Colosseum, don't ask me how, but he estimated that in the Colosseum alone in Rome, over half a million people lost their lives in these different contests with where they let the animals in on them and, and the gladiators fought each other and so forth. Um, so that's a lot of people. So was it more violent then than it is today? Um, Torture, and this is something that, that ordinarily we don't think a whole lot about anymore, but uh, they talk about the early Christians. Uh, it put, uh, created uh, torture techniques, as, as he put it, again, his sense of humor, deserts for the sinful. And let me give you a few examples. If you uh, violate uh, or commit a violation of pride. There are words. You're, you're put on a wheel. And then you're, you're, you are hit with sticks and whatnot to break your bones. If you uh, are, uh, commit envy, you're put into freezing water. Gluttony. You're force-fed to rats, toads, and snakes. If there's lust, you're found to be lustful. You're smothered in fire and brimstone. If you display anger, uh, you were dismembered alive. Greed, you were put in cauldrons of boiling oil. And if you were a sloth, and I thought, now what did they mean by that? Well, lazy. Uh, you're thrown in a snake pit. So these are things the author points out would be uh, types of punishment for those types of offenses as decided by whoever was in charge at the time. So we don't have those now, thank goodness. But again, was it more violent then than it is now? Uh, we talked about uh, um, England, and, and I personally have had the opportunity to go to, to London and spend some time and took all the tours that you go to. And one of the things they do is they take you out to London Bridge and they talk about in the old days, where if you committed certain types of crime and you were not royalty, they would cut your head off and stick it up on the bridge, on one of the spikes. And they tell the story that apparently there was uh, someone who accidentally had her head cut off because they didn't realize she was part of royalty. They buried her, uh, but then uh, they found out she was part of royalty. They went and dug her up. And went out and, and, uh, and put her head back on her body. 
so they could paint, so they could paint the pictures and so forth because she turned out she was royalty and not a crim- a pure criminal as originally thought. But that's what one of the tour guides. That's not in the book. That's what a tour guide told us. But how many times do we know that people get their heads cut off for doing something wrong and post it up on a bridge? Uh, is it more violent back then and a different type of violence back then than it is now? Uh, they talk about Grimm's fairy tales. And, and uh, I mentioned Jack and Jill earlier and, and whatnot and how violent some of those were. And, and, of course, again, there, there's a lot of liberties taken by the author and how he interprets some of the fairy tales. But he talks about how violent they could have been. And they've been changed now. A lot of the kids' books that are produced have been changed to take some of the uh, references to violence out of the books. Uh, he said the Muppets, some of the Muppets' early episodes were removed as being too violent. Now, I wasn't a Muppet fan, so I don't know. But, uh, but those of you who perhaps have had kids or have experienced some of that, you may know. But uh, according to the author, some of the, the earlier Muppet episodes were modified as being uh, too violent. Um, use of fists uh, used to be a sign of respectability. And now we still have fist fights. I wish, you know, I probably shouldn't say this, but I wish sometimes in lieu of guns and knives and whatnot, perhaps that someone would use a fist. Uh, I think we would have a lot less deaths that way. But at the same time, there was a day when it was accepted, endorsed, encouraged to resolve differences. And uh, so you would go out and, and have a fist fight. Um, and they talk about it was, it was sort of subtly encouraged as well. And again, I remember this, but I didn't think about it. Um, where you'd see the, the, the little cartoons that would be in the paper, the Charlie Daniels cartoon, uh, where you'd have the guy who would be the, look like the 98-pound weakling with the girlfriend and the other guy's the muscle-bound guy, and he's punching, the, punching the, uh, the weakling out. So then the weakling enrolls in this weightlifting program that somebody's selling, and he shows back up two months later, and he's got bigger muscles than the first guy, so he punches the first guy out. And, and, and in the author's uh, eyes... That was essentially encouraging this type of behavior. And now, what do we hear today about encouraging certain types of behavior? We hear about video games. We hear about violent movies. Are those types of activities, are they, I'm not saying they are, I'm asking the question, are they, in fact, influencing the mindset of of some of the young people? You've got people who will argue it both ways. But even talking about some of the things back, and these were back in the 50s with these little muscle cartoons and things, but we really haven't, we've changed how we do it, but is the message still the same? Um, We started talking about deaths per 100,000. Now, that's kind of a measurement that you see a lot of times uh, by now, law enforcement or or statistical uh, analysis by different organizations and they talk about deaths per 100,000. And as an example, Detroit, uh, in, uh, according to the author, and I haven't confirmed this, but Detroit, in uh, 1952, there were 45 deaths per 100,000. Now, to, to put that in perspective, in the city of Knoxville, uh, in 2012, and I called some of my associates to get this data, 
we have had 11. 11. And I will tell you that over an average of, of many, many years, what we will see in Knoxville is roughly 20 to 25 homicides slash murders a year, 20 to 25, roughly two a month. Of those, probably 80% or slightly over 80% are going to be relationship murders or homicides. Boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, wife, uh, two drug dealers, uh, two criminals. Um, they're going to be someone who knows somebody. And then they've had a beef that has risen to the level that somebody takes uh, a very aggressive action. And, and that is something that every single day, every single day I can tell you that your public safety officers, your police officers, your sheriff's deputies, they're always trying to drive that number down. But if you've got two people who are committing crimes out here, uh, and, and they're with each other at 2 o'clock in the morning doing whatever it is they're doing, and then they get crossways with each other or a rival gang or something, it's very hard to control those numbers. And, and over the years, though, uh, what we've seen here in Knoxville, again, our home, my home and your home, is uh, roughly uh, between 20 and, and 25. You'll see some as low as 19. You may get 26, 27, 28, but on the average – Maybe two a month. Now, people will talk about, <clears throat> and they use, they, they use these statistics to do comparisons between communities. And every day you'll have someone who's done a, a, an Internet study and, on, of somebody who's done these uh, statistical analysis. And they'll say, well, how come Knoxville is more violent than Memphis? And, of course, everybody's like, what? Yeah. Where did that come from? Uh, but there, there's these statistical uh, analysis out there that, that one of those things, if you work on it long enough, you can get, uh, what does they say, uh, figures don't lie, but liars figure. And, and you can work these things out uh, to one way or another uh, to try to come up with whatever end result uh, you might be pursuing. But there are avenues, there are things, and I encourage you, if you have any interest in this, you can go to the police department and get the data uh, from the police department or from the sheriff's department relating to crimes in this area uh, compared to other areas, uh, but to particularly in this area, and uh, even including um, uh, your neighborhoods and things of this nature. So if you want to know, uh, it's available to you to find out. Um, we'd like to think, uh, perhaps this is a little selfish, but we would like to think with crime going down, it's had something to do with the policing techniques too. And so what we have uh, done over the years is obviously look at, at, at various types of crime in different ways. And uh, one of the things they talked about was um, uh, President Clinton when and, uh, he came up, and I'll see if I had that date real quick, but uh, President Clinton uh, put, uh, made an agreement uh, with Congress to put 100,000 new policemen out on the street. Do you, you remember? Um, but uh, while everybody in law enforcement and a lot of our, our nation thought that was a great idea, 
guess what came with it after that initial funding? Was then the attached costs of maintaining that. And the way grants usually were granted is you start off with the first year, uh, they'll pay 75% of whatever the costs were. The second year, 50%. The third year, 25%. The fourth year, you're on your own. And in the fourth year, they, they usually require that fourth year that you still maintain the same level of service before you can start to reduce that to try to save costs. Now, I'm not saying it was a bad thing. I'm just saying, though, that what happens is, is it's not always what it seems when it first starts off. Now, picture, if you will, city of Knoxville. I, I can't uh, test to the sheriff's department. I'm not real sure. But in the city of Knoxville, um, we have 416 sworn officers, the pistol packers. Not our forensics folks, but our pistol packers. And, and within our budget structure, if we wanted to add those, uh, we had to go, and certainly Randy knows this uh, story, is does they add and whatnot. We'd have to go through a process of trying to get more money. But in the city, we were usually under the gun. If, if we wanted another policeman, we needed to find another position that perhaps we were not getting 110% out of and eliminate that position and transfer that money and use it in a different way. So uh, police officers are always, uh, police departments and sheriff's departments, I just know better about the police department, are always under the gun for maintaining their budget, not expanding the budget while still giving a good level of service. Now, picture, if you will, we have roughly 190, depending on who you talk to, 192,000 people that say live in the, in the city of Knoxville, in the city limits, not metropolitan, in the city. And I've heard they were 187,000, 192,000. So we'll go with the high number, 192,000. We have 416 policemen. How many policemen do you think the city of New York has? Anybody have a guess? They have 44,000. 44,000 policemen. They made a commitment. New York had been seen as one of the more violent cities in our country. And they made a decision, regardless of the tax consequences, <laughs> you know, we're going to drive that down. So if you go to New York, that's why when you see, uh, if, if you get to go up there and look around or you see on television, there's usually two policemen almost on every, inter at inter every intersection. And, and, but it is a deterrent. And, and they're able to show statistically that it is effective. The question is, how do they afford it? And, and that's something that we all uh, fight with who are responsible for the management of a department. Oh, I love this. Parts of the country, and I apologize for reading this to you, but I won't be able to do it justice if I don't. What they did, that these particular fellows, Nesbitt and Cohen, wanted to, do, to find out about honor. You read throughout the book that honor was a justification for violence. So let, let me tell you this, because uh, I can tell by the accents, everybody's not a local here, so let me read this to you. Uh, Nesbitt and Cohen showed that honor looms large in the behavior of individual Southerners. In one study, they sent fake letters inquiring about jobs to companies all over the country. Half of them, half of them, contained the following confession. 
There's one thing I must explain because I feel I must be honest and I want no misunderstandings. I have been convicted of a felony, namely manslaughter. You will probably want an explanation for this before you send me an application, so I will provide it. I got into a fight with someone who was having an affair with my fiance. I lived in a small town, and one night this person confronted me in front of my friends at the bar. He told everyone that he and my fiance were sleeping together. He laughed at me to my face and asked me to step outside if I was man enough. I was young. I didn't want to back down from a challenge in front of everyone. As we went into the alley, he started to attack me. He knocked me down, and he picked up a bottle. I could have run away, and the judge said I should have, but my pride wouldn't let me. Instead, I picked up a pipe that was lying in the alley and hit him with it. I didn't mean to kill him, but he died a few hours later at the hospital. I realized that what I did was wrong. The other half received a similar paragraph in which the applicant confessed to a felony conviction for grand theft auto, stole a car, which he said he had foolishly committed to help support his wife and young children. In response to the letter confessing to the honor killing, companies based in the South and West were more likely than those in the North to send the letter writer a job application. And the replies were warmer in tone. For example, the owner of one southern store apologized that she had no jobs available at the time and added, as for your problem in the past, now this is the, the fellow who committed uh, uh, a murder accidentally, he says, as for your problem in the past, anyone could probably be in the situation you were in. It was just an unfortunate incident that should not be held against you. Your honesty shows that you're sincere. I wish you the best of luck in the future. You have a positive attitude and a willingness to work. Those are the qualities that businesses look for in an employee. Once you get settled, if you're near here, please stop in and see us. <laughs> now, no such warmth came from companies based in the north, nor from any company where the letter confessed to the auto theft. Indeed, northern companies were more forgiving of the auto theft than of the honor killing. The southern and western companies were more forgiving of the honor killing than the auto theft. So what they talk about, obviously, is culture and, and what people think is acceptable behavior based upon the circumstances. And, uh, and clearly, <laughs> in part, in the south, we're usually thought of as being uh, somebody's going to go out and hunt and fish and, and drink beer and whatever else you do. Um, so th there is a difference of attitude toward the culture. But... The point is that that is violence less now than it used to be. Um, broken windows theory. What it is, it's a theory that says if you're in an area that looks like it's run down, nobody's taking care of it, nobody seems to care, even people who are not a part of that community are going to take the same attitude. Because if they don't see pride in the people who are there every day, be it a workplace, be it a, uh, a, a neighborhood, if they don't see that pride, then they're going to assume nobody in there cares. And they adopt the I don't care theory. So, uh, and the author talks about uh, a demonstration they did, another one of these uh, tests they gave people, and they gave them litter. And they sent them into one area, 
uh, with, uh, you know, the total, you know, they would need to clean up the litter and stuff like that. And they would go in the area to do it. But if they saw litter and trash and windows knocked out of, of uh, vacant buildings or whatever the case may be, they, did, they just threw their trash back down over with the other litter. Conversely, when they put them in neighborhoods that were fairly neat, they did not do that. So um, uh, they feel like the broken, window, broken windows theory that came into play was something that was starting to pick up on, on attitudes and culture and years ago, and that violence that was happening then is not as bad as it is now. Uh, they talked about types of punishments. The author was, felt very strongly that people who were, uh, had more money probably could control better who was being punished in what fashion. Now, not that who could hire the best attorney, but the parts of country you lived in, the areas of the country you lived in, if you could afford a house in a gated community, uh, theoretically, you should be safer, and so forth. Something he did not really get into as much as I thought he would uh, once I figured out the tone and, and the purpose of his book, but was technology. Technology. And what I mean is, you know, in World War II, can you picture uh, having um, the press embedded with our soldiers hitting Normandy or something? We didn't have that. Or watching live television of rocket attacks and so forth. It was, it was so different then. I mean, you'd find out days later, weeks later, if not months later, something that occurred. And now CNN and, and Fox are fighting over who's going to report it before the, the major networks talk about it. So was there more violence then than there is now? Uh, the author says yes, but we may not have even known it. <laughs> because, again, what we become aware of is what we see or hear or read um, on a daily basis now. But, but let me tell you why what the author says the author says, are possible reasons behind violence being much uh, worse years ago compared to what it is now. And I mentioned part of this. But family. The family unit became much greater, particularly from the 50s. And, and of course, we've had our ups and downs. But from the 50s on, the family unit uh, has a great deal more respect than it did, I'm told, in years past. Um, that's what the author says. Governance, the fact that we have more government now, the fact that we, we uh, everything is a little bit more transparent now than it used to be in our governance. And, and certainly those of you who have been in, in the political arena, you know that how important it is to have the confidence of the constituents. And, and if you have people that you're responsible for, be it either an elected position or an appointed, as I was as chief of police or whatever the case may be, uh, if you don't have the confidence of everybody that you're having to deal with, you're responsible for, it makes life very, very difficult. Knowledge. Talked about how much better educated we are now than we used to be. I mean, if you think about it again, go back to the, the early ages. You didn't, uh, didn't have the same schooling and so forth, and some didn't have school. But, but we're certainly better educated. The author talks about uh, civility, talks about books. Talks about, the, you know, in the 1700s and 1800s, how much uh, more popular uh, writing and printing books was. 
and people read more. So again, you can call that a spinoff of, of education, or you can just say it's something that made them better aware to be good citizens because they learned more. Um, democracy, a compassion. Uh, it's the author's position that there's a lot more compassion out in the country than uh, not only the U.S., but worldwide. This book was not a U.S. book. This was a worldwide book. And he says compassion, fairness, reason, um, integrity, community. Uh, and, 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 you know, we found here in Knoxville that, that where we try to enlist parts of the community that have a direct interest in whatever the program is, if you get buy-in, we can accomplish a lot of stuff. And, uh, and later generations do not have the same prejudices that sometimes earlier generations had. And, and as you work through uh, a generation, and there are changes which may or may not be popular. Most of the time they're unpopular. And maybe not that generation, but the next generation, it's not changed to them. It's just the way you do business. And then finally, uh, he, feel, he feels that, uh, that there's more compromise, my word, compromise, his word, meeting of the minds. Um, and let me just read you something real quick that was in the News Sentinel. The headline was, as overall homicides plunge, mass killings unabated. And essentially what it talks about, it uh, talks about the statistics, some of which he referred to, but talks about a high of homicides, a high number of homicides in 1991, as reported to the FBI and, and their own uh, pursuits here. Uh, 1991, 24,703 homicides. In 2011, which is the last year they have all the stats on, homicides, 12,706. It's cut 50%. However, uh, when they talk about the homicides, uh, it's at least two victims. When they talk about mass murders, they're talking about four or more. And if you look at the numbers for them, um, we have the high has been in 1982, it looks like, a 48. But if you look at all the rest of them, they're in the neighborhood of the low 30s to the mid 30s. And it's almost on an average. But when we start to look at reasoning behind it, which is what you do in law enforcement, it's like, what's happening? Why? How do we fix it? Uh, and all these things, uh, sometimes we, we don't have answers to. We just don't. One of the other things I wanted to mention to you is availability, availability of certain services in our community. And, and namely, we have a, an entity here, and it was put into place while I was still chief of police. Um, it's called the Family Justice Center, and it deals with domestic violence. It's a combination of, of several uh, organizations in town that uh, the collaboration of personnel, the Knoxville uh, Police Department, the Knox County Sheriff's Department, the District Attorney General's Office, they provide a whole arena of services to someone who may all of a sudden be faced with a situation that they never thought they were going to be faced with, and that is I've got to get out of the house to save myself. Uh, now, most of the time it's ladies, but not always. Um, so we try to analyze crime here in town every 30 minutes. Every 30 minutes we have an incident of domestic violence 
in Knox County. But does anybody have a question? I, I know I'm running long. I would like to know, uh, does he say anything about the probable violence in the future? No, he did not go to the future. He spent his time dealing primarily with comparing uh, today's uh, issues with, with, as I told you earlier, uh, years past. Anybody else? Pinker is a longtime apologist for the field of evolutionary psychology. So is he not making a sort of evolutionary or Darwinist group selection argument that to the extent societies uh, adopt enlightenment ideas, age of reason philosophies and science, that those societies will be more successful in some way? Yes, and, and he, he includes in that, uh, he includes in that capitalism, he includes uh, business success and things of this nature. So yes, that's a very good point. Okay, we're running late, so thank you all very, very much. I appreciate it, and, uh, and I'll wait around for a few minutes. If you... Thank you for listening to Book Sandwiched In, a lunchtime book discussion series sponsored by Knox County Public Library in Knoxville, Tennessee. To find other podcasts, please visit our website at knoxlib.org dot o-r-g